Happy New Year and welcome back to another episode of Wise Words, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds in education and beyond. 2020 is a year that can be described in infinite ways. But one thing is for sure is that on top of the new obstacles introduced by the ongoing crisis, many of the long-term challenges we have faced in our education systems have been exposed or even exacerbated. In response to this, for the past year we saw a global community of educators, practitioners, policymakers, and even organizations come together on multiple occasions to share their experiences and discuss solutions, not only in terms of an emergency response to the pandemic, but even addressing long-standing issues that have plagued many education systems around the world. Those talks and discussions are still happening. We've witnessed this firsthand with some of the virtual convenings we've organized last year, such as our three-part series, Education Disrupted, Education Reimagined, the many workshops and partnerships we've gained through our programs, or even through our talks with thought leaders right here on Wise Words. Needless to say, we continue to be deeply moved by the passion and dedication this community has demonstrated in helping to put our education back on track for a better future. To kick off the first episode of Wise Words in a new year, we'd like to take you through a glimpse of some of the key insights, takeaways, and learnings of some of our guest speakers that appeared on the show in 2020. To our regular listeners tuning in, thank you very much for being part of the journey. And for those joining us for the first time, we hope some of these insightful snippets can add to your perspective looking ahead for the new year. Like in many other industries back in early March, educators and students around the world were being thrust into digital platforms as a means to continue operating amid the crisis. A remote-powered world draws many challenges into question. Issues concerning ease of use, accessibility, privacy and security are just some that teachers are continuing to grapple with today. Aldo De Pape, founder of Teach Pitch, sits down with host of Wise Words, Stavros Yunuka, to discuss how the organization has been training thousands of teachers in partnership with the Ministry of Albania. What does it take to train thousands of teachers amid a global pandemic? Stick around to hear this snippet from our episode early in March 2020. What have you learned about what it takes to successfully train teachers to adopt digital technologies? For online teaching, yeah. Well, there are two there are two ways because it's training at scale, right? Because when yeah. we initially set this out, we thought we're gonna have a hundred teachers who want this maximum, but then the ministry endorsed it and sent it out to all the regional directorates that then send it out to all the teachers. Now, the regional directors are the employers of all the teachers, so. Yeah. We are on 8,000 teachers and counting. Every single minute I get new registrations of people who want to be trained. So I do not only have to ask myself the questions, okay, how do I creatively train 100 teachers? No, I need to train 8,000 of them in the foreseeable future. So I'm I'm learning how to process at scale, uh, which, which is, you know, we're used to dealing with scale, but providing them a robust qualitative training uh, at high speed is, is also a challenge. So, 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 so there's a learning, there's definitely a learning there. And I'm happy to say that we can accommodate. So, so, so that's a good, we, we have the capacity to train up to 150 teachers in one session. Also the capacity to provide them with all the training material, to ask them all the questions 
uh, in a synchronous manner, as well as for them, all of them to, to fill out the form in one go. So that's all now in place, I'm happy to say. Mm-hmm. And we're now trying to get back to all those teachers. So, so that, but that's from my end, I, I'd say. Um, what I see with the teachers, it's, it's basically their resilience in using technology. We have two types of teachers. We have teachers that are, are willing to go the extra mile, that are, you basically provide them with a link. And for instance, if the link doesn't work, we get teachers right away asking us, the link doesn't work. What do I do? The link does work, but you need to kind of give it a second to start. The link might open, but you need to click play to start uh, for the video to start playing. Lots of things that might sound obvious to people who use technology on a daily basis, yeah. but are not necessarily obvious for the teachers who are not, you know, for whom technology is not a day-to-day thing. So you need to be very explicit and very kind of patient with them, you know, feeding it to them like, okay, now here's what you do. Because if it doesn't work, you're held accountable. So some teachers, they're all very professional, don't get me wrong, but sometimes they might respond to you as an unsatisfied customer, right? An unhappy customer saying like, well, this doesn't work. You know, how do you expect me to to do this? And they're like, no, it does work. Give it a Give it a minute, give it a second, mm-hmm. uh, kind of all those things. So you need to make sure that what you facilitate, you're 100% sure that that's going to work there. Overall, they're, they're fairly well set up, but not everyone, you know, if there's a, if there's a fallout of electricity or if, the, you know, the Wi-Fi doesn't work or whatever, that might reflect badly on you as well, right? So, so yeah. you, you cannot really resolve that. There's nothing I can do about that from London. Yeah. But, but you do need to take into account that those are challenges teachers are dealing with, might deal with there. So that's what I'm learning. We can, so, so be very explicit, be very clear, be very driven towards an outcome. It mm-hmm. is very important in training someone that you create a feeling of accomplishment. So yeah. training, if you wouldn't ask any questions and it would just be just sit and listen and we're not asking you anything, then it wouldn't be considered a training. So there, there are enough interactive moments that we've created and enough kind of moments that we ask for the focus of the teacher that the teacher has a sense of accomplishment and that the teacher, yeah. feels, okay, I can really use this to build myself up to take it to the next level. That's very important that that's in there. If not, it's a, it, you know, it's a podcast or it's something they listen to, but not necessarily something they need to, to work with further down. I'm, I'm very blessed that I, of course, have a team that speaks Albanian because, you know, mm-hmm. it's all in their own language. So the yeah. entire training, there's nothing I can do there. I attend every training, but mm-hmm. I have no clue what they're saying <laughs> because it's all in Albanian. Um, yeah. I just make sure that we see everything through from the beginning to the end and that, you know, at the end when they fill out the self-assessment form, we have enough material available so we can help them to the next level and also certify them because their certification is also valid by the ministry and also ties into any supplemental credits they can get which which also was taken into consideration with any future salary raises and so on so forth so it is the certificate is important to them as well so we need to make sure it has it, it has a proper standing As students continue learning from a distance, we must consider if too much screen time is conducive to learning. Aparna Ramanathan started Ask My Class as an audio path for learning by introducing a voice system to the classroom so that children are screen and hands-free while collaborating with one another. Now they've been looking to adapt the platform for the home with Ask My Kid. In the following clip, you'll hear Aparna talk about how the distance from school could potentially help students become more passionate about their learning. So 
I think part of what's happening with remote learning is the economic divide is uh, making things amplifying the extent to which there can be such inequality in our system. So I think um, the lion's share of um, burden is going to the kids that um, have less means, um, less access to that support and technology and where there is a lot more stress in the household because the anxieties don't just come from a discontinuation of education or um, a removal from their usual social supports, but also from the anxiety that's playing out within the household itself. Uh, has a parent just lost a job or, you know, um, so I think there is a lot of amplification of that uh, that can be quite hard. There's also like a, a divide in terms of the age group for uh, of the children that are at home learning. So I am feel, I'm fortunate. I have two kids that are independent learners because of their age. They're yeah. 13 and 15. I have a lot of friends though who have children that are, you know, in, in kindergarten and, uh, you know, up to eighth grade and there's much less independence there. And so they do feel like they are taking on homeschooling as well yeah. as their regular work. And so that's an enormous stress and burden on them. But there is also a different way of thinking about it. There is, like I was saying, a mindset shift that can occur as well where suddenly it's less about the subjects and the subject content and more about the whole child. Mm -hmm. And there's also like there's evidence as well that you will see like my son, he spent time, he'll get his work done and submit it, but then he spent time on a software where he's creating a 3D donut with this, you know, and he's, he's, he is in the flow. You can see he's been working on this for hours. He's getting it just right <laughs> on this software. And I said to him, it doesn't have any colors yet. He goes, no, that's materials that comes later, mom. He's going to continue working on it today. So there is another element where we can see that there is a lot more passion driven learning happening as well. But like yeah. I said, you need the means to do it. Yeah, and um, I can see there is a definite economic divide that's happening, that's magnified. It's always been there. It's just amplified right now. And so from that point of view, I think the even the word social distancing itself has a, a, a fearful element to it because you really feel like you are socially disconnected. Mm. But I'd suggest from a mental health point of view that there are, because we have like everyone, almost everyone has access to a phone and being able to get support from your community just by, you know, through text and calling and um, how are you. I think that's an enorm- uh, a really important way as a si- society for us to feel like we're, yeah. we're sticking together and part of something bigger. In a world of virtual interaction and digital anonymity, how can we better equip students to show the same level of empathy they would face-to-face? Savros Yunuka asked about this to founder of Design for Change, Kiran Birsethi. Here's what they had to say. One of the things that, that we can observe with, with a fair degree of confidence is that our humaneness seems to de- decline when we, you know, significantly when we, when we enter that digital realm. I mean, people say and do things online that they would never dream of doing in a, in a sort of face-to-face interaction with somebody. Now, part of it is, you know, the, the, the kind of the veil of anonymity that, you know, allows, you know, people to sort of behave, you know, uh, inhumanely. 
but I think there's there's something else at play which which may have something to do with with how we began this conversation, which is this kind of desensitization that's happening on uh, uh, when you when you enter the the digital realm that you're not you're not fully engaging your senses and your emotions and I just I wonder if you have any you know any, any thoughts or any insights in into how you how we might begin to sort of turn turn that around. I think you've you've hit on the biggest crisis education is facing, and I think this happened even before. I I have to say that I've been sensing this over the last three years, where we've we've just as as a species become more intolerant of the other, and the other could be any other. And we're very creative, having ways to make the other, whether I don't like your religion, I don't like the way you talk, I don't like your color, I don't like your, you know, we are extremely creative when it comes to 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 uh, being intolerant. And I think it yeah. became a heightened sense over the last couple of years to just, I, I think this this general sense that we have to be fearful and of each other. And we're the same species for crying out loud, you know, on this planet, if we, if we one had to just kind of hover up on uh, in the space and you saw 7 billion little pieces of jigsaw puzzle, we're all part of that same. When you put them all together, we're one species. We are the human race, right? But yeah. to be humane is choices we make. And very often education doesn't ask you to make those choices. It doesn't put you in places of dilemma. It doesn't put you in places of iteration. It doesn't tell you, listen, listen to another. It's all this, that, this perception that I have no time. Oh, but we have enough time to teach a quadratic equation for 15 years, but we don't have enough time to tell you, listen, be compassionate or be kind. Mm. And this conundrum has been there for the longest time. And over time, we are, we are graduating a citizen mindset that it has to be one versus the other. So I think education can play its greatest role of finally recognizing why do we come together and what is that opportunity when you are with another? It could be one person, 10 people, a thousand people, but the opportunity to to make a choice on that day, not next 10 years. That's the other biggest lie we've told people. You are the future. God, keeping telling children you're the future, consistently delayed that 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 milestone, saying no, no, not now. Now let's learn mathematics, but mm-hmm. tomorrow I'll do a better job. No, yeah. no, not now. Let's plan for our our marks. So we then we told children, my God, your your marks are your only identity. We didn't tell them they. We told them they are markable but not remarkable. You know that's the one thing I keep. I mean, it just blows my mind. Yeah, and, and again. And, I, and again, I keep coming back to in the first two years of a child's life on the planet, they're telling us, look at me, I'm amazing. They do the greatest evolutionary steps from going from, from crawling to standing, talking and laughing in, yeah. in the first two years of their life. And then we say, no, 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 not now. Now sit down. Now don't talk to another. Now be fearful. Now don't, uh, now just, you know, you know, sort of completely uh, sort of reduce your entire worldview into just you and, and yourself. So I think choices to be kind today, to be empathetic today, yeah. uh, we don't emphasize enough. We are always delaying that. We're saying, okay, tomorrow we can do that. Day after we can do that. Next month will be a good month. So again, when people have often asked me, what's the one message you will give teacher? And I keep saying, you only have today. That's the only day you have. 
And if today, if we, there's this classic kind of dilemma um, uh, case study that is said that if 20, if you knew at 12 o'clock you were going to, the world was going to end, what lesson will you teach? If a teacher can think on that frame and say, if 12 o'clock today, the world was going to end and I had the opportunity to be in front of 25, 30, whatever, what lesson will I teach? I can guarantee you they will not be in a classroom firstly. They will be out having a conversation. And then suddenly they realize that they are a walking curriculum. They don't need a PhD to be kind. You know, and that's what I keep telling you. You have the power within you. You have the opportunity to smile. And children again and again are telling us that teacher that made a difference to me was a teacher who went outside the class and recognized that I had a name. Yeah. They're repeatedly telling us that, right? Yeah. And we are constantly saying, no, 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 that's not important. That can happen on one of those Fridays, you know, when there's a sports session that we will take away and we do that. So, and that's, and that's what I want to give the confidence back to say that, no, you just, if you put the attention on today, your tomorrow is anyway taken care of. So that's what I have learned. And that's what I have, I've yeah. seen children telling us over the 20 years. So with confidence, I'm able to, it's not a two-year experiment. I'm saying for 20 years, we've done this. We've, we've done this. We've tracked our alumni and our alumni coming back and telling us these stories about how, I remember one of my boys went to this very premier engineering college, you know, where everybody wants to go to. And, he, and our children write back mails to us the first month they've been into a college and to say, hi, K-Ma'am and all of this. And he said, you know, K-Ma'am, everybody uh, laughed at me when I said thank you to the canteen boy. You know, and it was a small little moment. And he says, today, he's saying, everybody's decided they'll take their plate back and they'll put the plate back and they'll help the canteen boy. And it is that that finally is your success. Not your marks and not your results. That way, it's your, your children who will take these stories into the world and, to, and, and influence that little place over there. Yes. And that opportunity is what education should be preparing our children for. That, that little moment when... When a child leaves your space and is, and is making their little, little my, my, you know, ecosystems better, kinder, mm-hmm. um, more tolerant, uh, the marks will come. I mean, that, uh, that's the easy play. That's the easy part, yeah. In 2020, we've also seen a lot of digital solutions and edutainment having to step up their output to help fill the gap while schools remained closed. A couple of months ago, we spoke to Nisha Ligon, the co-founder and CEO of 2017 Wise Awards winning education project Ubongo. Ubongo is the leading kids' edutainment company across Africa. In this clip, we hear more from Nisha about her thoughts on the role of edutainment as a primary source of learning. So for us, the interesting thing is we always saw ourselves as supplemental, right? And then kind of overnight, we were like, wow, while governments are working on their response plan, we're kind of the only thing for a lot of kids in many of the countries where we were working. Um, But we were never designed to be, you know, your kind of like sole source of education. So we did what we could to try and support. Um, So we definitely, you know, our hope is that kids go back to school and, and we can go back to filling that supplemental space. But I think we have learned some about what more we can be doing and and we hope that that remains. So I mentioned before that we do content for caregivers. We really doubled down on that during COVID. And I think a big silver lining of it was that a lot of parents in Africa had always been told that like, your job in education is pay school fees and send your child to school, right? They were not at all engaged in education, especially parents who didn't have much of an education themselves. And this was actually in some ways a real opportunity, especially through radio, we did this a lot, to reach out to parents and say, you are your child's first teacher. 
doesn't matter your own level of education, you can do this and give them. We did like lots of facilitated activities and exercises for parents and older siblings and grandparents to do with kids where they can be learning together and also reflect and see, oh, wow, by playing this game, my kid really learned something. There is quite a role I can play and I can help keep them learning. Um, So what we're trying to do is make sure that the momentum on that really stays, right? We don't want parents to just send the kids back to school and say, hey, you know, I have nothing to do with this anymore, but to kind of build that culture and habit of learning together at home, especially for the early years, but, you know, it's important for the older kids too. So that's something I really hope remains. And um, in Tanzania, we have reopened schools now for over a month. And it it does seem that, um, you know, even even with kids going back to school, um, the parents are remaining highly engaged. They're using the additional services. Like we launched a WhatsApp bot. We have SMSs for parents and, and those are still being heavily used even though kids are going back to school. So I I think that is a good sign of maintaining that engagement. Um, I think for the sector at large, one of the key things is going to be figuring out how do we engage with the the formal and the government system to um, make sure that we can support as kids are going back to school Um, because we do know that it's, there may be continue to be more disruptions, right? It's like, they might go back in for a bit, come back out. Um, and, and I think this is an opportunity for a kind of transition to a different um, kind of status quo of more blended learning. Um, but it's difficult. I mean, everyone's just trying to do whatever they can right now. So, so where I actually see it happening is at the grassroots and at the in- level of the individual teachers and the individual schools and smaller organizations. But I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to really have to take a big effort for it to happen at the level of a school system as a whole. One of the biggest struggles many have been voicing is that the limited way we interact in the digital space have caused us to become less motivated, inspired or engaged. Perhaps you've heard of the notorious Zoom fatigue. Are there ways we can potentially enhance our level of interaction through the use of new cutting-edge technology? Recently, we've seen a technology that has existed for decades surge in popularity in the market. Virtual reality. China president of HTC Alvin Wang Graylin talks about how VR has evolved throughout the years, how we can use it to harness the potential of virtual learning, and how it gives us the ability to restore our human interaction in the virtual space. I was on the road 70% of the time because I'm always out there meeting customers, meeting partners, meeting our users, etc. Right? Uh, now, you know, I, I've done, I think, three or four business trips all year. This is like, I've done more, uh, less trips this year than I would probably in a normal week uh, last year. Right? So, so, the default now is for us to communicate through, through a digital means. So I think that hurdle is already over. Now, once we've, we've started to do more of this, and if you know, one day you're doing 10 to 15 video meetings, you get pretty tired, right? This whole concept of, of, of Zoom fatigue, it's, it's not a concept, it's, it's real. No, it is. I can testify to that as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we both can uh, can speak, and most I'm sure everybody on uh, on this podcast or video cast can also attest to that. So, so at the end of the day, people want to have a more natural way to interact, and you know the reason people want to go face to face is because when you're face to face, you feel like you're together, you're having a shared experience, you're able to create that connection, and you're able to create a shared memory. 
And that's that's what's missing with video is that you you really it's very difficult for you to have that personal connection through just a video, particularly if you have ten or twenty or thirty people on the screen. You know, it, it it just becomes almost impossible to have any personal conversation. I mean, it's a little easier for us one to one in this case. It's it's not so bad. I mean, we, we we you know we caught up a little bit about what's going on in the last you know months. If you were if you had thirty people on the screen, you're not going to ask you know, hey Mary, how was how your kids? It just it just sounds really weird, right? So, but when you're in a a, a virtual environment what you can do is to have that side coffee chat or to post somebody uh, uh, to the side, even if there is a big group happening, you know, have a big event happening, right? So, so that, that's what's missing. In fact, it's, it's that, that team connection and camaraderie. In fact, we just did a study that, that uh, finished recently where we had uh, four different teams uh, working uh, using different mediums. So one was using pure audio, using phones every day. One was using pure videos every day. Uh, one was two offices, um, two offices connected by video uh, that was working together. And one was purely spatial, actually it was those five teams. And the last team was just a team working together to solve problems, right? They're all solving the same problems. And we, we measured their, their effectiveness, their sense of belonging, their, their sense of engagement. And amazingly enough, I, I guess, um, uh, well, right, as, as we would predict, the, the worst uh, scenario was audio only, right? So it was like by far uh, less effective, less belonging than, than all the other ones. And of course, the best one was everybody in the same room. Now, uh, what, we, what was interesting was that we found that having people uh, all in a spatial environment was very, very close. It was probably 90% as effective as having everybody in the same room. As the real thing. And, and in fact, what's even more interesting is that the sense of engagement and belonging was actually higher with the virtual group because they felt like there was less hierarchy. It wasn't about who's the boss. Everybody's an avatar. Everybody feels more equal. And uh, there's less, less kind of the, the uh, one person usurping the control uh, of the group. So that's what people were more, more willing to engage and, and participate. Right. So it actually created a higher sense of, of belonging. Uh, we also did a longer term study for, uh, for multiple weeks of people uh, working together and their job satisfaction level was actually much higher than, than using video or audio alone. Right. So uh, th- this, this is, uh, you know, I think for, for it was like 30, 35% higher in terms of sense of belonging and 25% higher in terms of job satisfaction. Right. I mean, if you're doing HR, I mean, that, those kind of numbers of increase is, is phenomenal, right? For almost very little cost increase to what people are already doing. Um, and so this, 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 is, this is why I really believe that the technology is, um, is about to really hit a new kind of inflection point because now people are forced to be a part and XR technology, VR technology allows people then when they're apart to feel like they're together. Right. So, so this social distancing really helps to highlight the, the real benefits of this technology. With societies more fluid and fragmented than ever, how can we help young people feel confident in their own identities? Perhaps one of the ways we can do it lies in the prospect of getting parents more involved in our education systems. 
In the following clip, leading members of Karanga, the Global Alliance for Social Emotional Learning and Life Skills, share some of their thoughts on what it takes to do this. Parental engagement has improved, you know, during this time, or, or, you know, what, what was that? Do you see a change in in attitudes towards yeah. your your what you're advocating for? I think we finally. I, I've always believed that parents are the biggest. I call it the biggest untapped workforce for education in the world. I mean, I think that if we can really understand and accept that parents can help their children because they know their children better than anyone else and they care about their children more than anyone else. Yeah. So if we can get their engagement into education, that's the best thing. They have to be, we have to be allow them to be real partners, which means when they give us information about their students, we have to take that and use that to help our students to learn. So what I think we've seen now is that, that by engaging them and providing them with tools to actually help them to, to, to work with their students in the learning sphere, that's, that's given us a huge advantage. But secondly, I think, so you've got, it's, it's the right, the, the, the idea that they actually know what they need for their students, for their children as well. We've had kind of the assumption that the teachers know best all of the time. But actually, when we look at the, um, you know, the cultural identity, parents know better about that than some teachers do. So we have to actually mm. say, who's, who, who's got the set of knowledge that we want to, to, to look at here? And how do we marry that together to find out how do we, what's best for that learner? So it's actually taking a little bit of lead from either side and bringing it together yeah. and saying what's going to be best for our kids. And let's look at some of our, some of our um, cultural identities, our language, our identity, and see what's going, to, what's going to work for our particular children. And looking at our um, ancient knowledge, our, our histories, and bringing this all together and swirling it together and deciding, okay, together, what's going to work for this particular child mm -hmm. and our community. And I think that this has been a time that's really enabled us to, to respect each other's identities and knowledge around some of these areas and it's been such a, to me it's been a really magical time in that sense to quickly add to that uh i i think this has reiterated that learning is not a place it's an activity and parents you know all over the world have been closer to that learning process that typically would have you know occurred at school and so i mean it just it just shows us very clearly the distinction between schooling education and learning and learning being a human act that's impossible not to take part in, whereas schooling being kind of an institutional model and a system that really many of us have been talking about for a long time, including the late Sir Ken Robinson, you know, that who died last month, you know, really was based in a past paradigm. And so the question is, how do we use this moment, the Overton window being thrust open, where all, you know, far more things are considered feasible um, you know, we've seen the most rapid shift in ways of working. And I mean, educators overwhelmingly have done phenomenally well in to be able to keep learning going. Yeah. Uh, and also to think, and this links to the earlier question, Stavros, to think ecologically. You know, really it's now, as, as Joanne has said, it's that relationship between parent, learner and teacher that becomes even more important as somewhat of a tripod, you know, where you can have all these, all these elements working, um, in play. The other thing that I think is really interesting that we should pay attention to is, is the role of agency. Because at, at just as, you know, all these things have been shut down, a lot of agency has actually been increased on the learners, where if they're in a remote learning environment, they can kind of make choices. Um, choices that it's far hard, harder to be compliant in a, in a Zoom call, like this one, for example, right? Um, so I think that's a really interesting um, theme to explore further as well. I think one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that, and one of the things that my colleagues have noticed is that the inequities that we always knew were there for children are coming to the forefront. And part of that has to do with, 
you know, the ability for parents to be able to be engaged in their child's uh, learning. And we knew that far before the pandemic, that one of the critical factors for children to be successful and happy in schooling is that parental relationship with their learning. Are they able to engage with their children's learning? And we know that based on some financial pressures, based on two parents working from home and trying to guide education, um, parents that are just not able to to Mm. connect with their children's learning, particularly at this time, those inequities are are coming to the forefront. And, And, you know, in a way, I think that's a good thing. That means that all of us have the opportunity and the responsibility to say, can we be doing things differently to support families so that all children have that connection to learning in school, in the formal education, as Luca pointed out, as well as in their home environment? Yeah, I think, you know, there's such an interesting window of opportunity at the moment because there is significant more interest in social and emotional learning than there has been in the recent past, I think. And and that kind of relationship between all the different um, organizations or stakeholders who recognize that we need to shift what happens in the classroom and how we use the time in the classroom and that kind of alignment with the sorts of skills and behaviors and competences that social emotional learning programs um, can help develop. So we're you know, really keen to double down on the advocacy work um, and provide more support where we can to policymakers or researchers or practitioners who want to go deeper into the social emotional learning space so that we can you know, ride that wave at the moment and help, um, help you know, the, the interest in the topic translate into reform that sticks and to changes in classroom practice, changes in what the system recognizes and values. Um, and you know, as, as Jojo and the others have said, how we can support all students to go on and thrive. Thank you for sticking around this far. By the way, if you liked any of the discussions you've heard here, feel free to browse more than 20 episodes we produced in 2020 available in our catalog of discussions. Whether you're tuning in on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, you can find it all under Wise Words. We're really proud of what our community has accomplished over the past year, and we're optimistic for what 2021 holds for the future. You can, of course, expect a new season of Wise Words, which will be announced shortly in the near future. But in the meantime, we'll leave you with some final thoughts on the future of education from Sherry Weston, President of Social Impact and Philanthropy at Education Nonprofit Sesame Workshop. You know, I'll start with a concern, but I want to end always being more optimistic. But I mean, one of the concerns I have, we talked about how um, COVID just exasperated existing vulnerabilities and inequities um, and that and set us back in a number of ways. I mean, I, girls' education is something Sesame does, and I personally have a, I'm very passionate about. And, um, you know, when you think of the progress we've made over the years, I think in the last decade, there are 80 million more girls in school, you know, through many efforts. And um, I do worry about girls being one of the um, fallouts from COVID because if you look at East Africa, the Ebola crisis, and the number even after schools opened, how many girls didn't go back to school once the school is closed? Whether it's through because of child marriage or teenage pregnancy or being forced to you know be in working, often girls don't go back. I think the um, Malala Foundation did a recent study that that took that data and said if you if you extrapolate it, it could be as many as 20 million girls who never return to school, even when schools start opening. So that is a concern I have in terms of um, 
post-COVID. But on a more optimistic note, I will say it's hard to um, avoid thinking about education now. You know, in countries that are that are wealthy countries to countries that struggle from the developed to the developing, education has to be part of recovery. And, and so that has become more on the front burner. And, you know, again, as I mentioned, the largest disruption to education in the history of the world has meant that every country has had to start to focus on how do we provide education. Um, many of the lower income countries, it is television and radio, and we've played a huge role working with um, uh, ministries and providing more content, you know, in places where we've never been. Um, two, I think there is a much higher understanding of the need for distance learning and to try to minimize the divide. In sub-Saharan Africa, how many children have absolutely no access to online learning, to, to computers, to, you know, and someone at the World Bank um, recently said they thought that was going to be a priority over the next 10 years. And now that forces a sense of urgency of being more of a priority of five years. So I, I do hope that it has made everyone realize if we're going to recover better, if we're going to build back better, if we're going to learn from this crisis to be more prepared for the next, we all know even after the pandemic, there will be future crises. And and I believe that education is top of mind in that. And I, and that gives me, um, you know, some reason to be cautiously optimistic. I, you know, I, I think that when, again, when we talked about COVID, especially at the outset, you don't think of a child as the face of COVID because they were less susceptible to the disease. You know, it's just not. But when you think of the long-term impact of the pandemic, it, to me, it's children and education. <laughs> 